Well, once again, good morning. Welcome, South Fellowship Church. We're so glad that you're here. And um, once again, happy Mother's Day. And um, I, I am not going to be giving a Mother's Day sermon. I'm going to be giving a Jesus sermon um, that applies to all, but specifically, I think it'll hit home for moms as well. So, um, Lord, as we jump into your scriptures today, would you, would you meet us uniquely in this place? Open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, that we might hear your voice above all else. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 I want to invite you to close your eyes and to pretend like the year is 200. And that you live around the Mediterranean and that you've decided to follow the way of Jesus. Against the advice of most of the people in your life, you've joined this sort of rogue, ragtag band of the Jesus Way followers, and it's a Sunday morning, and before you go to work, you're heading to church. And you get your family ready, and you walk through the dusty streets, and you enter into the quote-unquote sanctuary, which just happens to be a, an apartment building. And you sit around with a number of other believers. The, the way is growing, and so the room is, is jam-packed. And you open with, with prayer, and everybody starts to pray around you. And then you move to the greeting time. And as you stand up, you... Look somebody else right in the eyes. They're following the way of Jesus too. And you plant a big kiss right on their lips. Okay, open your eyes. So that's pretty much the way that it went in the early church. Can you believe this? I mean, we might have an easier time recruiting greeters if we brought this back. The early church was known for what they called the kiss of peace. And Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, wrote that everybody in the church participated in this custom. Cyprian, amen. We're going to get some amens today. We're going to get charismatic in this place today. Well, Cyprian, another one of the early church fathers, in, in 250, he was exiled on an island. And here's what he writes. He says, there is nothing which could give me greater pleasure or more noble delight than at this moment to be kissing the lips of those who have confessed Jesus as Lord. So, I mean, the dude is probably starving, right? He hasn't seen his family. And what he's longing for is to kiss another follower of Jesus. This is strange. <laughs> this is different. And yeah, you could say it was a different culture. We'll get to that in just a moment. But, but regardless of what culture you are in, the act of a kiss is a personal, intimate display of affection, 
from one person to another, especially if you're planting a sloppy one right on their lips like it turns out they were doing in the early church. I mean, if you've ever watched the show um, Married at First Sight, what they do is they, the, the experts pair people together to have an arranged marriage, and there's people who are married for weeks before they actually ever kiss each other. Some of the couples never do because it's so intimate of an action. And for hundreds of years, the church was practicing this as their norm. We get together, and one of the things we do is we kiss. They had this conviction, we're, we're not just a congregation, we're a family. We're a new humanity. We're, we're, we're a new picture of what God is doing in the world, not just as unified, one singular believer, but as a, as a group. The most common metaphor that the scriptures use for the church is the household of God or the family of God. And this was one of the ways that they signified their togetherness. Now, it did come back to bite them a little bit. Um, word spread about the church. Uh, there were rumors in the early um, few, first few centuries of, of the church. One of them was that the church was full of cannibals because they practiced the Eucharist. They ate the body and blood of Christ. So word spread, you don't want to be a Christian. They, they're cannibals, okay? The other thing that spread was that there was some sort of inappropriate sexual activity specifically because they loved kissing each other so much. Clement wrote in the third century, there are some who make the assembly resound with nothing but their kisses. He called them the lavish lip smackers. A lot said about the church these days. That's not one of the things that's said about us. But um, if you could just stand up where you are, and I want you to kiss the closest four. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. The church had this conviction. The way that we interact with each other matters. The way that we interact with each other matters. And, and to drive it a little bit deeper, Paul will write this. He, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, if you have your Bible, flip over. We're going to be camping out there today. Here's what he says. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Here was his conviction. The gospel that we believe comes to life on the canvas of our community. The gospel we believe comes to life, it becomes 3D, it becomes hearable, touchable, feelable, tangible on the canvas of our community. And followers of Jesus are called to be a peculiar people, to live uniquely in the way of love. We're a community of people who are, who are deeply rooted in, a, in another world. And Paul's communities, he, he envisioned them as these little audio-visual pictures that point to what he's praying for for the rest of humanity. What happens in the church, he would say, is his conviction, is his proof that Jesus walked out of the grave and that Jesus is Lord. The picture of the church is his conviction about why people should believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So, okay, look up at me for just a moment. My intention is not to bring back the kiss. You can take a deep breath. 
Okay, some of you are bummed out. That's okay. We can talk about that later. We do pastoral counseling. It's okay. Um, but look up at me for a moment. We need to recapture what the kiss meant. Because as we, as we read through the scriptures, there are certain things that are culturally grounded, and we can go, okay, well, that, that doesn't fit or that doesn't work in our culture anymore. Agreed. But what did the kiss mean? What did it signify? What, what was the communal peace that that action displayed so that their lives were a picture of the gospel? Whatever that was, we need that back. We need that back. And what I'd love to do today is over the next few minutes, just talk about what does that actually look like and mean. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and this is Paul's sort of his last shout out to this church. He's written an entire letter previous to um, 2 Corinthians. It's called 1 Corinthians. And, And so this is his sort of his parting shot after correspondence, after years ministering to them. This is sort of the final thing that he says to the church at Corinth. Verse 11. So finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Will be with you. And and the three things that I want to draw out are things that we say in church that make church work. There are also things we say in family that make family work. They're probably things you've heard your mom say to you at one point or another, or as a mother, you've said they are the pillars that hold up every community that flourishes. The first thing he says, strive for full restoration. When a follower of Jesus would look another follower of Jesus in the eye and kiss them, here's what they were saying. They were saying when things go wrong and when we, when we hurt each other unintentionally or maybe when maliciously we do something that eventually we wish we could take back, we are committed to making things right. That's, that's what this kiss signified. That's what this kiss meant. Um, the word restored in this passage is the word katarizo. Will you say that with me? Katarizo, yeah. And it literally means to fit back together. It's like you're putting together a puzzle and pieces get dispersed all over and you're, you're putting it back together. And it's a command. It's a command for two reasons. One, Paul knows that his churches are going to need to practice restoration. Because if you live in proximity with people long enough, they're going to hurt you. You don't have to say amen, you can. We all know that's true. We, it's part of our human journey together, isn't it? We're imperfect. And so we can choose to live in discord or we can choose to pursue reconciliation. And what Paul says is we've got to pursue reconciliation. The second reason he gives it as a command is because we must choose it. We must choose it. And you think about all that was going on in the church at Corinth. You can just flip through 1 Corinthians. Um, You can start in chapter 1 and read about the division that's in the church. Some people follow Paul. Others follow Apollos. Others follow Christ. They're all following different people. 
You have somebody who's sleeping with his stepmom, sort of strange, okay? You have worship services that sort of look a little bit like a circus. And Paul's going, we've got to bring this thing back together. We've wronged each other. But we've got to practice this distinctly Christian ethic that says, I forgive you. That's what the kiss pictured. When things go wrong, we'll work through it. Or, or, it's having the courage to step out and say, I'm sorry, depending on which side of that aisle you're on. I love the way that Jesus paints this picture in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And by the way, we're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount this summer. I cannot wait. So little spoiler alert. Here's one of the things he talks about. It says, therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Okay, quick time out. How many of you have been in worship at some point in time, and God digs something up in your soul that you hadn't thought about in weeks or months or maybe even years? Yeah, that, that happens. When we're quiet, when we listen, when we posture our souls to say, God, what are, you, what are you doing here? Sometimes like a thought will come into your mind and you'll go, I haven't thought about that person in years. And Jesus says, okay, when that happens, when that happens, I love it. He says, leave your gift, right? So every pastor's like, yeah, yeah, leave your offering first, right? And then go make things right, right? Leave your gift there. Because if things aren't right on a horizontal level between you and the people around you, they'll never be right between you and God. Leave your gift there. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. See, the standard in Christian relationships is not perfection. It's restoration. It's when things go wrong, we commit to doing our best to to make things right. We aim to be a people here at South who are committed to both giving and receiving grace, and we are going to need to be on both sides of that equation at some point, yes? Amen. But I just want to point out, when we talk about restoration, it's different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is releasing the wrong that someone's done to you and saying, God, God, that's yours, and you get to deal with it however you see fit. Forgiveness takes one. You can forgive without having any contact with the person who's wronged you. Restoration takes two. And that's the hard part about restoration, is sometimes that other person just isn't on the same page. Maybe they can't see how things have gone wrong. Maybe they can't see what they've done, or maybe they can't, a whole lot of things going on. And so that's why the scriptures will say, if it's possible, as far as it depends on whom? You. As far as it depends on me, because that's the only person you can control, live at peace with all people. In the course of this message, I want to share a few stories about us, because I see God creating a beautiful family, and one of the ways I see that is in this, I forgive you being displayed in our body. Just two weeks ago, I got a note from somebody within our church. 
And it was right after the message that we gave on um, getting a white stone someday with a new name written on it out of our Revelation series. And we handed out those white rocks and we said, just take a moment and ask Jesus if there's anything that he would say over your life, if there's a name that he would, that he would give you. And so somebody in our congregation was holding this rock and, and they, wrote, they wrote a note to me two weeks later and just said, or two weeks ago and said, as I was holding that rock, I just heard this name, Forgiver. And they said, I'd, I'd tried to make things right with my spouse a lot of times, and it always made things worse. And they said, as I, as I held that stone, I just got this sense that Jesus wanted me to step out again, to be that forgiver. And here's what they wrote. They said, that action changed our marriage. We are closer and more unified than we have been in years, in years. That's the, that's the I'm sorry or I forgive you in action. That's the power of living as family. Here's the, here's the way Paul goes on. He says this, strive, for, so fight for it. Fight for full restoration as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. So maybe even as I tell that story, you're going, oh yeah, there's somebody I've got to try to make things right with. And then he says this, encourage one another. I mean, as you would hold somebody's face and, and kiss them, it was a commitment for you to say, I'm, I'm for you. You couldn't kiss somebody and stab them in the back at the same time, unless you're Judas. But most people can't do that. This word encourage that Paul uses here literally means to call alongside of. And we typically have in our mind a picture of an encourager where they're sort of like a soft teddy bear, right? And they're that person that's like patting you on the back and it's like, you can do it. You're amazing. You're a snowflake. You're unique. You're awesome. But that's not what this biblical word of encouragement actually means. It means to call alongside of. Encouragement is not for the weak. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the unloving, certainly. You have to have love, but you also have to have strength to call forth the best in another person. I mean, if you read through this letter alone, Paul encourages people to reaffirm their love for a wrongdoer. He encourages people to be reconciled to God. He encourages people not to resist the grace of God. These are not patting on the back going, you're amazing, you're awesome, you can do it. It's calling them forth and calling them forward. That's what encouragement does. Encouragement says, I'm for you. I'm for you. I forgive you. I'm for you. I love the way that the book of Hebrews paints this picture of this gathering that we get the chance to be a part of on a weekly basis. It says this, and let us, in Hebrews chapter 10, and let us consider, like, let's think about this. Let's give some mental energy towards this, how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Like, so, so just a question. How many of us, before we donned the doors of this church this morning, thought about 
How can I, how can I spur someone on? It's the picture of, of somebody riding a horse and, and digging their heels in to say, come on, go, 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 towards love and towards good deeds. And he says, don't give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, but what? Encouraging, calling alongside of one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So the author of Hebrews goes, listen, the gathering of the saints, the gathering of the family of God is not something that we should have to pray about whether or not we're a part of. It is essential to following the way of Jesus. In large group gatherings and small group gatherings and everything in between, you cannot be an isolated Christian. It's impossible. Try practicing the one another's listed in the scriptures alone. Good luck. It's like high-fiving yourself. You can't do it. And church is not an event that we attend. It's not a network that we're a part of that we try to leverage for our own well-being and our own success. No. It's as Desmond Tutu so powerfully said. I think this is a great picture of what the church embodies. He says, we depend on each other in order to be fully who we are. The African concept of Ubuntu says a person is a person through other persons. We become more fully who we are as we link arms and hearts together. It's interesting, as you read through the scriptures, you get to Genesis chapter 1, and you have this poetic language of God creating, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and then he steps back and he says, it's very good. And before anything else happens, before sin enters the world, before this fracture happens because of Adam and Eve's decision to go against the grain of God's command for them, God looks at humanity and goes, you know what? In all the good I've created, you know what's not good? Is that man is alone. Before sin, God goes, that's not good. So we don't need each other because we're broken. We need each other in order to be whole. From the get-go. From the get-go. A recent study showed that the same place in our brain that responds to emotional loneliness is the same place that responds to physical pain. Your body feels loneliness. It's not just your heart. It's not just your soul. It's your physical body that feels loneliness. And we live in a world, don't we, that's as connected as it's ever been, but people are more lonely than they've ever been. In the flatness and globalization of the world that we live in now, you can be connected to a ton of different people, but it's not solving our problem for loneliness. Do you know that in Japan you can rent a friend you can. And we're heading that direction. We're heading that direction. So what does this look like in the church? What does this look like in the church? Let me give you four things I think it looks like in the church. I think it looks like an arm. I think it looks like an arm. I think it looks like putting an arm around somebody. 
I shared this at our vision night, but I got an email a few months ago from Rhonda Nelson, who sings on our worship team in church, and she gave me permission to share this email with you. She said this. She wrote this to me. God has funny ways, little ways of letting me know that he hears. One being the latest worship night that we have had. While we were worshiping, I was telling God how alone I feel sometimes. And I was asking him to help me feel his nearness. And it was right then that Nicole walked up from where she was sitting quite a few rows back and put her arm around me and stood and worshiped there with me. They had a dialogue a little bit later and she said, Nicole just felt like God told her to come stand next to me. I think that's the, that's the picture of church, isn't it? It's an arm. And there's all sorts of ways that we do that. Maybe it's physical. Others are metaphoric. Like every month when you give to the benevolence offering, we get the chance to bless people in our church body who are struggling financially. So one of the arms that you put around somebody this month was a young couple who was in between jobs and who could not make their rent payment on their apartment. And you got the chance to come alongside of them, to put an arm around them, and to pay their rent for a month. That's awesome. That's an, yeah, you can, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So maybe it's an arm or maybe it's an ear that every Sunday, every Sunday, you get the chance, or maybe it's midweek with your life group, or as you interact with people throughout the week, you get the chance to ask questions that go just a little bit beneath the surface. When people express just that, that hint of maybe things aren't that great, you get the chance to follow up, and you get the chance to be an ear, to listen, to care. Maybe it's a word. It's a word of encouragement. Did you know that the scriptures say that some of you are gifted by God to have words to give to other people? And I, I believe we need to live into this a little bit more, you guys. That we need to sense the Spirit. Some of you are gifted in this to sense the Spirit's prompting to know, man, that person needs something from me. Maybe it's a little piece of encouragement. Maybe it's an arm around them. Maybe it's just some sort of way to display love. But here's the way Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians. To one there's given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. Some of you have this gift. And we need you to live into it if we're going to be the family that God's calling us to be. In others, maybe it's an invite. It's an invite over to your house for lunch. It's an invite out after church. It's being a part of a meetup or dinners for eight. An arm, an ear, a word, an invite. These are all ways the church says, I'm for you. I'm for you. I don't know what kind of um, home you grew up in. Um, Mother's Day is one of those double-edged swords days for me. I love to celebrate my mom, and I miss my mom dear. Or I love to celebrate my wife, who's a great mom, and I miss my mom dearly. But as I think about the things that I love most about my mom, it was some of those things. An arm, an ear, a word and a life that was just ridiculously open. And as the more I inter have interacted with moms, I think, 
moms, you're, you're, if I could say this with all gentleness and respect, you're, you're hard on yourselves. And you're, you, most of you are doing such a great job. Such a great job. In fact, I ran across this video this week, and I shared it with our mops group, but I wanted to share it with you too, because I think it paints this picture of the way moms are living out this DNA of, I'm for you. And sometimes you just don't realize you're doing it. I'm a perfectionist, and so that's hard with kids. Uh, there's definitely days when I have my doubts about my abilities. I struggle with my temper. I struggle with like how I react with situations. I wish I knew how to, I guess, just calm myself before speaking to them. I wish I was better at taking time to sit down and just listen more to my child. I wish I was more confident in being a mom. I'm not the most patient person in the world. Patience. Patience is far and away probably the biggest struggle. I just want them to know just how much I love them. My mom is totally awesome. <laughs> She's fun to snuggle with. Pretty, funny. She does cook a lot of food for me. She's just unique. That's why I love her so much. We go on dates together. Like, we go shopping. She loves me a lot. I have a lot of favorite things about my mom. We like to watch movies together and color and stuff. We go to church together, we volunteer together. She is like my heart, I guess you could say, because she's that close to me. My favorite thing is to jump on a trampoline with my mom. That's my most favorite thing to go up high. We like get ice cream or something and like you go to the nail salon and have fun. <laughs> my mommy's my hero. She's pretty and beautiful. She is my hero. She just will care about me and just always love me forever. She's the best. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> I always seem to focus mostly on the negative, and I guess I can walk out of here and say that I'm doing something great, and that my child is viewing me in totally different lenses as I view myself. So that's, that's inspiring. This is my calling. This is my job. This is what I love to do, and I will do it better and with love each and every day because those kids count on me, and they love me for what I'm doing. It wouldn't be Mother's Day if we didn't all cry together. So, um, <laughs> I just want to, I, I, the message of 
man, what, what your kids see, moms, what your kids see in you and what you see in yourself sometimes is a different story. And I just want you to know, whenever you live the I'm for you, that, that gets down in them. And eventually it'll come back out of them. It may be decades before they come back and say thank you. <laughs> so hear it today. Thank you. Listen to the way that Paul goes on. He says this, and we'll land the plane here. He says, and so encourage one another and be of one mind. The unique thing about the church in this culture was not that they practiced the kiss of greeting. This was actually widespread and widely practiced. Here was the difference in the church. In the church, everybody kissed everybody else. In the prevailing culture, you only kissed an equal. So a slave would never kiss a free person. And a free person would never kiss a slave. And somebody who was um, on a different social status, they would never come together. But when you walked into the church, it was this declaration, we're all on equal footing here. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we are in this together. Be of one mind. It did not mean that they agreed on every little thing. Praise the Lord. What it meant was that they agreed on the main thing. Here's the way Paul describes the main thing. He says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. That's you. That's you. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of God. See, see our anthem isn't we're, we're all the same. That's not the song we sing. Somebody say praise the Lord. The goal of Christian community is not uniformity, it's unity. It's for us to say there's a ton of things that we have different. But the one thing we hold the same is enough to keep us together. And that one thing is Jesus. And so we get the chance to say to each other, I forgive you. We get the chance to say to each other, I'm for you. And we get the chance as a church family to say, I'm with you. I'm with you. One of the things I love about South is that we have a wide range of people. We have... um, we have some people that are older and some people that are younger. And I thought, I mean, what would, the, what would our older generations want to say to the younger generations? And what would, the, what would the younger generations want to say to the older generations? So I did just a little bit of asking. Here's what some of the things the older generation said they'd love for the younger generations to hear. We want to be involved in your life. We're not going to force ourselves in, but we want to be a part. We've sacrificed and we've given, and one of our deepest longings is to see the way of Jesus continuing and moving forward. So if you're a younger person in here today, I just want you to hear that, that many of our um, wiser generation is saying, we want to be a part of your life. Here's what the younger generations would say to the older. Some of them, not all. Don't pigeonhole us as millennials. 
We're not all the same. But we have a desire to be relational, to be creative, to be resourceful. And catch this, we have a desire to make a genuine difference for good in our world. I started to think about, man, we we have people who are single, we have people who are divorced, we have people who are single parents, we have people who have physical challenges, we have some people that have mental challenges, we have people that are down to their last dollar, we have some people that have plenty, we have people who are walking in joy, we have some people who are battling depression, we have people who are gay, we have people who are straight, we have people who have been here for forever, we have people who are probably here for their very first time, and I want you to hear me say, you're welcome here, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. And we're in this together. We're in this together. One of the groups that I think is doing a great job of this is a group called Sisterhood that uh, Sue Muckley started a number of, um, I guess, years ago now. And at the end of each semester, she has people share testimonies. And so we get the chance to capture these, which is just awesome. And here's what one of her leaders says. She says, I've seen women encourage, lift up one another in prayer, Women pray for one another and follow up the next week. <laughs> Women who are real and sharing their struggles and, doing, and by doing so, they create a community atmosphere of transparency and vulnerability in our groups. Our groups are cross-generational, which aids in encouraging. For example, the anniversary of one woman's loss of her daughter was not forgotten. She received many words of support, flowers, texts, and prayers. Another woman was prayed over and received a care package as she was journeying elsewhere. Leadership is cared for and supported. And to that I go, yeah, yeah. That's an I'm with you picture. We could let our differences divide us or we could let them create a beautiful mosaic of what God's gospel is intended to be for his whole world. I pray we choose the latter. And listen to the way Paul ends this section. I just can't end without talking about this for just a moment. He says, all God's people here send their greetings. May the grace, which sounds a little bit like, I forgive you, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the love, which sounds a little bit like, I'm for you, of God. And may the fellowship, which sounds a little bit like, I'm with you. Yeah. Okay, so one person dialed in. I'm with you. Right? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Isn't that a beautiful triune picture of these three words? I forgive you, I'm for you, and I'm with you. And when we live those out, we embody the God who we claim came for us out of love, gave himself for us, and by his spirit dwells with us. When we live that out, we are, Paul says, being built together to become a dwelling place in which God, by his spirit, lives. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love the way that A.J. Sherrill put it, and we'll close with this. The church, he says, in her essence is those peculiar people. What is the church? It's, it's a peculiar group of people 
who conspire together with God for the world's renewal. The sum of the whole, he says, is greater than the parts. So before you go rushing out of here and whatever is coming up in your day, I just want to give you one piece of encouragement to sort of drill down and say, what might God have you practice from this this week? To live as family? You've heard a lot of stories. I'd encourage you, if you have stories about the way God is moving and working in your life, I just want to say, I want to hear them. I want to hear them. You can send them to stories at southfellowship.org. I promise I won't share them unless you give me permission, okay? But I want to hear them. If God's moving and working in your life, in a ministry you're involved in, will you let me know? Stories at southfellowship.org. Maybe this week you join a meetup this summer, golf, softball, playdates, etc., all sorts of stuff. Maybe you offer hospitality. You open your life and your home. Maybe you host a dinners for eight. These are, you could come up with a hundred ideas. Maybe you lend an ear or an arm or a word or an invite. And just as a side note, in case you missed it, you don't need a church program to do that. Would you stand with me as we close our time together? I'm not going to have you kiss the person next to you, but I am going to have you hold hands with them. So you grab a hand, you can go across the aisle. I want to read this once to you so you can hear it and sort of let it wash over you. And then what I want us to do is to close our time by reading it together. At South Fellowship Church, we will give and receive grace. We'll be a community that that comforts, encourages, and spurs one another on towards love and good deeds. We will commit to walking with one another in the good and difficult seasons of life. We purpose to live together as family. So let's say this as we close our time together. At South Fellowship Church, we will be and receive grace. We will strive to be a community that comforts, encourages, and spurs one another on towards love and good deeds. We will commit to walking with one another in the good and difficult seasons of life. We purpose to live together as family. And Jesus, may it be so. May the grace of you, Jesus, may the love of you, Father, and may the fellowship of you, Spirit, unite us together as family. And may the way that we live be the canvas that we paint on to declare the goodness of the gospel that we believe. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said.